Welcome to The Think Podcast, the show that tackles impossible questions from a biblical perspective with your host, Joel Sedeckes. And now, get ready to think. Welcome to The Think Podcast with Joel Sedeckes. I'm Joel Sedeckes, and this is the show that tackles impossible questions from a biblical perspective to help you explain, share, and defend the Christian message. Now, as I speak, I am preparing for a debate tomorrow with Brandon, who is the self-proclaimed friendly neighborhood atheist, and he is also a self-professed secular humanist. So, I wanted to bang out a quick podcast on how secular humanism steals from biblical Christianity. Now, I say this in love, not out of animosity to Brandon or anyone else who calls himself or herself a secular humanist. But secular humanism is a worldview. It is an ideology, and it needs to be dealt with as an ideology, and I believe that in so doing, we are actually showing dignity to those who hold this worldview, because uh, I don't want to um, uh, create a straw man of their position. I don't want to, um, I certainly don't want to put words into my opponent's mouth by any means, uh, but at the same time, uh, it is a it is an ideology. It There are documents out there that explain what humanism believes. And so I want to do my best to interact with those documents as they stand, as they exist out there in the world. And uh, in so doing, I hope I can show respect to not only my opponent, but also uh, others who would hold this this perspective. And uh, the reason why this is so important is because secular humanism is a worldview that if left unchecked. If a person remains a secular humanist, that is disbelieving in God, and yet still trying to have the um, the benefits of the uh, of, of all the things that humanism um, aspires to, uh, and yet doing so without coming into a right relationship with God, that is that is a um, the outcome of that, according to the Bible, is. Uh, entering into eternity apart from God, which means there is nothing left but judgment and punishment, hell. Yes, the biblical worldview does absolutely teach hell. And I would never want that for my opponent. I would never want that for um, anyone that I interact with. I would want everyone to come to repentance and a knowledge of the truth. So that's why I'm doing this. I'm hoping to um, expose secular humanism for what it is, I'm also hoping to uh, foster a a richer and more meaningful dialogue tomorrow. And um, of course, my ultimate goal is I I want my my debate partner, Brandon, to repent and trust in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. So secular humanism is a movement that came out of religious humanism. The first manifesto was written in 1933 in between the two world wars. It was revised a generation later in 1973. And so you have this, the, the um, Humanist Manifesto II coming out in 1973. And then again, it was revised in 2003. So the first one took 40 years to revise. Second one took 30 years to revise. It's been 20, it's been 17 years since, since number three came out. I'd say we're about due for another revision. Who knows if they'll do that, but in light of all of the, uh, moral, 
um, changes. I almost said progress. I wouldn't view them as as a real moral progress. But in light of the, the moral changes to the, the global consensus on morality, um, things like transgenderism, uh, homosexuality becoming enshrined as a human right, uh, I, it wouldn't surprise me if there was another secular humanist manifesto coming out in the in the next few years. But it is a movement that came out of religious humanism, and which is which is why you're going to see a lot of uh, what I would call religious overtones in what they believe. Um, my first interaction with a secular humanist was in 2016 at an interfaith panel that was that I participated in. It was on the subject of human origins, and it was hosted by the Smithsonian Institute at the Skokie Library as a series of such events uh, were being held around the country as the um, the exhibit on human origins was traveling around the country. They would do these interfaith panels. And um, as we'll see, and as I noticed then back in 2016, secular humanism is a movement that uses beautiful language to put forth worthy ideals with, unfortunately, absolutely zero foundation or basis for doing so at least in any kind of objective sense. Now, the Humanist Manifesto 3's definition of humanism, this is the document that's coming out of 2003, um, defines humanism as this. Quote, humanism is a progressive philosophy of life that without supernaturalism affirms our ability and responsibility to lead ethical lives of personal fulfillment that aspire to the greater good of humanity. What I want to do is um, I want to break down the statements, the primary statements on ethics within the human Humanist Manifesto 3. Um, and that's this. Ethical values are derived from human need and interest as tested by experience. Humanist ground, humanists ground values in human welfare, shaped by human circumstances, interests, and concerns, and extended to the global ecosystem and beyond. And finally, we are committed to treating each person as having inherent worth and dignity, and to making informed dis, uh, choices, informed choices in a context of freedom, consonant with responsibility. Let's tackle that first statement first. And what we'll do is we'll talk about it from an, um, why, why it is inconsistent with its own um, professed secularism, or, or um, in this case, as Brandon, uh, my debate partner, is an atheist. It'll be, I'll show how it's inconsistent with his atheism. And then we'll look at it from a biblical perspective and see how the biblical worldview actually not only accounts for the aspiration here, but actually, um, so it, uh, it actually, um, uh, accounts for the aspiration and provides the framework for actually uh, fulfilling that aspiration. So, ethical values are derived from human need and interest as tested by experience. Okay, first point. Given atheism, why are ethical values derived from human need and interest? Why not derive them from the will of the strongest? As Nietzsche would have said, why not derive them from the complaints of the weakest or the most oppressed? Why not derive them from a roll of the dice? On what basis would a secular humanist 
say that ethical values are derived from human need and interest, tested by experience. Why that arbitrary standpoint? Why that arbitrary standard, human need and interest? What secular humanists are doing here is they're picking an arbitrary starting point. They're saying human need and interest are the basis of ethical values. But there is no basis for that given atheism. In an atheistic universe, there is no one standing outside and above us saying, thou shalt derive your ethical values from human need and interest. And we haven't even begun to address the fact that human need and interest itself is an arbitrary and changeable standard. What I'm looking for right now is why even choose that as a standard in the first place? Given atheism, there is no reason to choose human need and interest as opposed to the will of the strongest, the complaints of the oppressed, a roll of the dice, purely random. And the next question I would have would be, why have ethical values at all? Why is there such a thing as an ethical value? Why is that even a concept? Now, secular humanism arose from religious humanism, which arose from a kind of enlightenment-based liberal Christianity. So, Historically speaking, it makes sense why secular humanists would want there to be ethical values, but why would there be, given atheism, anything like an ethical value? Ethics have to do with oughts. Oughts are things that you should do, objectively speaking. Why would there be an objective or a subjective ought in this godless, meaningless, objective, purposeless universe. Next, who determines human need and interest? Who determines that? And if these decisions about human need and interest are driven by experience, if they're tested by experience, as this statement uh, that the Humanist Manifesto 3 would say, well, then what experiential data counts and why? Why is one set of data points based on experience more valid than another? And if that's the case, is my data set, uh, my, my experiential data as a Christian, equally valid to those of a secular humanist? If so, then I would like to suggest that my experience as a Christian says that ethical norms and ethical values are not to be derived from human need and interest primarily. They are rather to be derived from God's command. Does my experience as a Christian weigh equally to the secular humanist's uh, experience? And if not, why not? And who's to judge between the two of us? On atheism, given atheism, there is no way of judging. And so my experience is by definition equally valid, unless you just arbitrarily exclude God and exclude supernaturalism. But what's the basis for doing that? Other than just simply blind faith, belief that there is no God. Or really, it's more of a a, uh, volitional decision. We don't want there to be a God. We don't want to factor in God. And therefore, we will not factor in God. Whose experiential data counts and why? Proverbs 14.12 warns us, there is a way that seems right to a person, but its end is the way of death. Surely, Any secular humanist would agree that there have been people who have been self-professed humanists who have gone way awry, way off track, and have actually put forth some pretty terrible, pretty 
inhumane ethical values. Well, who's to judge between the two? Whose experiential data counts? Why have ethical values at all? And why not derive those ethical values from any other standard other than human need? The atheist is left without an answer to these questions, other than simply saying, this is how I want things to go. But to that, I answer, who cares? What you want, who cares what I want? I'm not trying to be harsh, but if you want one thing and I want something else, who's to judge between us? Now, from a biblical perspective, ethical values are in perfect accordance with human need and interest. Now we're going to see how the secular humanist worldview steals directly from the biblical Christian perspective. Because given the truth of biblical Christianity, yes, human need is a real valid concern. And yet, the Bible would say that our primary need is for God. In Genesis 1.27, it says that God made man and woman in his image. Shortly after that, we see God walking in the cool of the day in the Garden of Eden, looking for Adam and Eve. There is an established relationship that is put in place from the very creation of humanity. Mankind was created to know God and to be known by God. Our primary need is for God. Romans 13.9 talks about how biblical ethics are all summarized in one beautiful ethical imperative. Listen to Romans 13.9. For the commandments... You shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Look at that, the biblical commands of the Old Covenant, yes, the Old Covenant, the Old Testament scriptures that every atheist and every secular humanist loves to insult as outdated, outmoded, uh, out, outmoded. not every, not every, there are some who don't, there are many who don't but many do. These ethical commandments are summarized in one command. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, you shall seek the good of your neighbor equally to the good of yourself. You want to talk about human need? You want to talk about putting human need and interest as an ethical value and an ethical imperative? The Bible does that. But the Bible, the biblical ethic, is rooted in the character and command of God. Now, that's an objective standard. God's commands are perfect. God's commands are perfectly in line with our needs, our true needs. And why is that? Because God is perfect. Because God made us. God knows what is best for us. Uh, atheistic, secularist humanism directly steals from the Bible and then tries to erase the author of these commands um, out, uh, it, it, it tries to eradicate their source. But you can't eradicate the author of the command and expect to keep the command in any meaningful way. Next up, the quote from, again, we're still working from the Humanist Manifesto 3, drafted in 2003. It says this, humanists ground values in human welfare shaped by human circumstances, interests, and concerns extended to the global ecosystem and beyond. Right away, let me just say this idea of the global ecosystem and beyond that is 
a um, that is an echo of the cultural mandate which is given in the early chapters of Genesis by God to humanity in which we are commanded to have dominion over the earth to subdue it and actually to use it, not to exploit it, not to consume mindlessly. That is unchristian, but rather to steward it and care for it as a manager, as kings and queens put over the earth. So this idea of the global ecosystem, even the very concept of an ecosystem, I I have to go on a tangent here because the word ecosystem is derived from the word oikos, which is a Greek word which means household, which assumes that there is a working system that uh, in which all the members of a household work together and over which is the father of the house, which is God, who has put humanity as an underfather, as an understeward over the oikos, over the ecosystem. It's, 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 it's an allusion to the idea that the world is a system. It's a it's a cohesive and coherent system that was designed by a designer and given to humanity to steward under the steward under the authority of God. This idea of an ecosystem presupposes God. You cannot get away from God. You cannot get away from biblical truth simply by saying we are secularists, we are humanists. The very word ecosystem has embedded in it a value system that is lifted straight out of the Bible. But let's look at other ways. Uh, and, and let's flesh this out and see how secular humanism steals from the Bible. Okay, first of all, humanists ground values in human welfare. Human welfare? That seems awfully arbitrary, doesn't it? Given atheism, why would we care more about human welfare than the welfare of the higher beasts or of the lower beasts or of the plants, the trees, the hypothetical protozoa that uh, we haven't discovered yet or the, the, the one-celled life forms that live on a planet orbiting Alpha Centauri or some other star? And you might say, well, we can't care about that life that's living on another planet in some other a star system, they're not close to us. We have no ability to care for them. But why would proximity matter? Why would we base our ethics on what's close to us? That seems awfully jingoistic and xenophobic, doesn't it? Why would what's close to us arbitrarily matter more than what's far away from us? As a matter of fact, why would humanity versus animalia, why would Homo sapiens take precedence? I heard a debate with Matt Delahunty, who's a, an atheist, and he was saying, well, you know, of course I'm naturally going to care for my own species more than other species, but why? Objectively speaking, why would there be an ought tied up with that? Why would there be an ought to, well, I'm, yeah, sure, I'm, maybe I'm going to favor my own species, but that's not the same thing as saying I ought to favor my own species. Why would any kind of category about uh, the, 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 my own species my own phylum, my own genus, my own kingdom. Why would that matter? Now, there's there's another problem with this as well because we're talking about human welfare. Well, who gets to determine what is welfare? Is it the ones with governmental power? Do we define it individually for ourselves? Do we let society decide? And are we really going to sit back and say that the government is capable of defining what is welfare for us? Really? Who is the head of our government right now? Who's the head of our state? Donald Trump. You want to trust Donald Trump with your welfare? What if Bernie Sanders gets elected? What if Joe Biden gets elected? You want to trust Joe Biden with your welfare? 
I heard a guy tell me one time that he trusts Bernie Sanders to make financial decisions for him better than he trusts himself. In the words of Vody Bauckham, help you if that's what you think. Why would you trust a government bureaucrat with your welfare or to define what's what's good for you? And look at the and, and again, we have to ask which government is it the government of the United States? Is it the government of Russia? Is it the government of North Korea? Do you think that the communist government of China might have different ideas about what constitutes your human welfare than you do? Does that strike you as a problem? And if you say, well, okay, it's not uh, any one particular national government. No, no, no. It's defined by a supranational coalition of nation states sending their best and brightest, their humanistic best and brightest, which maybe some of you would say that's, I'm repeating myself there. And they together will determine and define what human welfare is. Why? Why? There's never been a coalition of bureaucrats that you've disagreed with. You arbitrarily, automatically trust every bureaucrat, every bureaucratic council that comes together. No, in reality, what's really going on here is this is a desire for human self definition and autonomy. That's all this is. And that desire really com- really boils down to a desire for me, myself, and I to determine what's best for me. That's really all this is. This is a desire for radical self-definition. I get to define what's best for me. This is the epitome of rebellion against all authority. And ultimately, that's the epitome of rebellion against God. Because upon what possible basis would anyone decide what is welfare, what qualifies as welfare. Haven't secularists ever made bad moral decisions about what is rightly considered welfare? Haven't you yourself ever wrongly decided what would be, what would be best for you? I mean, do you even trust yourself to make that decision absent any objective standard above yourself? Atheism, here's the sad, the sad fact. Atheism gives you no basis for determining what is objectively considered, rightly considered welfare. It just doesn't. Now, from a biblical perspective, human welfare has a very meaningful definition. It, it is the flourishing and functioning of humanity according to God's original, for de, uh, original design for humanity. Human welfare is a meaningful category. Go, go to Genesis chapter 1, when God created man and woman in his image. And human welfare is best put into perspective by first understanding man's purpose. We were created, along with the rest of creation, to glorify God. So Psalm 100 verses 1 and 2 say, Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth, the whole cosmos. Make a joyful noise to the Lord. Psalm 19 talks about how the heavens themselves declare the glory of God. Ecclesiastes 12 talks about how the whole duty of man is to fear God and obey his commandments. And yet, The Bible tells us that human welfare was broken by sin. The Bible says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. And yet, God went above and beyond anything that we could ever ask and imagine and redeemed us, redeemed humanity, redeemed his people for himself by sending his own son, according to John chapter 3, verse 16. 
So today, the greatest threat to human welfare remains sin. Sin in the world, sin in society, sin that constantly tempts us, and yes, sin in our own heart. As Alexander Solzhenitsyn once famously said, the line between good and evil, the boundary between good and evil, runs straight through the human heart. And so 1 Corinthians 6, 9 says that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, this is good news for those who are oppressed because it it talks about how um, the oppressed and the poor and the downtrodden will finally one day be vindicated. But it's bad news for all sinners. And that includes us. We need redemption or we will be excluded from the kingdom of God. Talk about human welfare being violated. Hell is eternal. It is real. It is awful. And it is the eternal state of of each and every one of us, humanist, self-professed Christian, self-professed atheist, any one of us who does not repent and trust in Jesus Christ and his redemption. The redemption accomplished by Jesus Christ was the greatest achievement for human welfare in the history of the human race. Not only did it secure eternal welfare, but physical and spiritual redemption for everyone who would ever trust in Jesus Christ. It also undoes and redeems past injustices. The Bible says in Romans 8.28 that God is working together for good everything in the world, everything in our lives. Moreover, it was the catalyst for so much good in the world. Universities, hospitals, justice movements like the abolition of slavery, civil rights, and the end of human trafficking, and soon, soon the end of human trafficking, God willing, and the end of abortion, soon, God willing. These movements all have their genesis in Christianity. And it pains me to read these humanist websites that talk about how humanism is responsible for so much good in the world. Humanism? Atheistic, secularist humanism is responsible for good in the world only insofar as it borrows from Christian biblical values. These massive advancements in civilization and in uh, cultural and societal morality and ethics owe their existence to biblical Christianity, and that is to say, to Jesus Christ. Christians are responsible for these radical advancements. And insofar as they are non-Christians, they are using Christian values to advance them. Last and final way that secular humanism steals from Christianity is when they say this, we are committed to treating each person as having inherent worth and dignity and to making informed choices in a context of freedom consonant with responsibility. Well, freedom and responsibility, that sounds an awful lot like the the biblical um, Calvinist doctrine of compatibilism, where we have real responsibility for our actions, and yet there is an informed way we must make them because uh, God is sovereignly choosing, has chosen, what will happen. And God has written into the very fiber and fabric, the very warp and woof of reality, this inherent worth and dignity of humanity that in the end, all things will be worked together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose, according to God's plan, those he, pre- those he foreknew, he also predestined, he 
called, he justified, and he glorified according to Romans chapter 8. So there's this plan of God, which validates the dignity of man. And yet within that dignity, although there is choice, there is also, uh, there is, there is perfect freedom of choice and there is perfect sovereignty of God that is overseeing all things. That sounds very Calvinistic. That sounds very um, Christian. And and uh, this very concept that we even have freedom and dignity. All Christians would affirm that. Calvinist, Arminian, anything in between. But by what rights would a secularist or an atheist say anything about freedom? Anything about free will? We're just dancing to the tune of our DNA. We're just the products of random chance. Biological determinism must reign supreme given secular humanism. Certainly not any kind of transcendent human free will. According to the Bible, we act according to our nature. According to secular humanism, we act according to biological determinism, which is a far more bleak picture than any kind of biblical view of freedom. From a secular perspective, here's how secular humanism steals from biblical Christianity. Third way, from a secular perspective, whence comes this inherent worth and dignity? Human beings, given atheism, are literally evolved pond scum. Carl Sagan famously said, on the scale of the worlds, to say nothing of the stars or galaxies, humans are inconsequential. A thin film of life on an obscure and solitary lump of rock and metal. Given that view, any dignity that we have must be granted to ourselves. But what we grant arbitrarily to ourselves can just as easily be taken away arbitrarily. It is, in the final analysis, as R.C. Sproul would say, it is imaginary. It is illusory. Because who are we to give or grant ourselves or to ascribe to ourselves any kind of dignity? I don't know what I am. Given atheism, I am the product of blind chance. I don't have an objective definition to who I am. This is why postmodernism and its close cousin critical theory say that there is no objective truth and that human identity is non-essential. They are, um, what they are saying is that your identity is foisted upon you by society and the best thing for you to do is to reclaim your identity by ascribing some identity to yourself, thereby ripping, uh, taking hold of dignity and grabbing it out of this world in which there is no objective dignity and bestowing it upon yourself. And that Mentality is the natural, inevitable conclusion of 300 years of Enlightenment thinking, which has worked so hard to divorce human identity and dignity from God. But when you do that, you are left with nothing more than a little fortune cookie of dignity in which you write on it yourself. You put a piece of tape on it, slap it to your chest and say, this is who I am. Everybody give me dignity. Everybody respect this. But why should anyone else possibly give you any dignity when you yourself, objectively speaking, have no dignity and you're just ascribing dignity, dignity to yourself? And why should anyone else respect that? 
Why should you respect it yourself? Given atheism, what right have you, a collocation of molecules, which is ultimately all you are, what right have you to give yourself any form of dignity that matters? What right have I? What right have any of us? What right have I to give you dignity or you to give me dignity? And yet, we do recognize that we have dignity, don't we? See, on atheism, given secular humanism, human life is a tragedy. There's no way to account for this dignity that we know that we have. And yet, even calling human dignity a, a tragedy, that's really going too far as well. My wife and I just recently went to the opera. We saw Madame Butterfly. And Madame Butterfly, spoiler alert, is a absolute tragedy. But it's a tragedy because it was written for an audience. There is meaning in it. The meaning is that life is sad. But human life, if there is no God, is not sad. It's not happy. It's not anything. It's not even, it doesn't even rise to the level of tragedy. At most, we could say it's absurd. It's absurdism. Because as Sagan said, we are a thin film of life on an obscure, solitary lump of rock and metal. There is no meaning to it. And there certainly is no dignity that we can meaningfully ascribe to human life. Without God, that's our situation. Now, from a Christian now, from a Christian perspective, all human life does have dignity. Genesis 9, 6, God says, Whoever sheds human blood by humans, his blood will be shed, for God made humans in his image. You have so much dignity that if someone were to kill you, they ought to be killed. The, the, the penalty, the biblical penalty for murder is capital punishment. That's how much dignity human beings have. Going even further in the book of James, chapter 3, verses 9 and 10, with the tongue we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in God's likeness. Blessing and cursing come out of the same mouth. My brothers and sisters, these things should not be this way. According to the Bible, you have so much dignity that if someone wants to have a right relationship with God, they cannot do that and also curse you. That's how much dignity you have. You have dignity. When do we gain this dignity? Well, Psalm 139.13 says that God knit us together in our mother's womb. Exodus 21 verses 22 through 25 say that if someone accidentally causes an abortion to happen, the penalty for that is death. Talk about dignity. You had dignity in your mother's womb. Jeremiah 1.5 says that God knows us and calls us in our mother's womb. And Luke 1, 41 shows a vivid depiction of an unborn child leaping, reacting to something in the external world. You had personality even when you were in your mother's womb. See, human dignity is part of God's design. It is granted to us by God. And it was sealed when God the Son became a man. He did so to redeem his people. He bestows dignity on us. When we receive him, when we believe in the name of Jesus Christ, we are given the right to become children of God, according to John chapter 1, verse 12. In Ephesians 2.10, it says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. There is no greater dignity than coming into a right relationship with God. 
through Jesus Christ. To summarize then, Secular humanism has to steal from biblical Christianity to support its ideological ethical framework. Stealing is wrong, and yet Jesus Christ died for thieves. The problem facing secular humanists is not that their desires are too large or too grand, even when they talk about the global ecosystem. Rather, the desires of secular humanists are too small. Human beings are not meant to putter around with little horizontal, moral, ethical values that have no greater transcendence, and then to die and be forever forgotten. No. Human beings were created to be in a right relationship with the God of the universe, the God who created the sun, moon, and stars, and the planets, and the atoms. The God who holds the universe together the strong and weak force of the atom, are under his command. The Bible says that he calls the stars by name. We are created to have a relationship with that God. The desire of secular humanists to divorce humanity from God, even if they don't understand that that's what they're doing, that is not humanizing, that is dehumanizing. If you start with humanity, without God, you get neither God nor human flourishing. If, on the other hand, you start with God through Christ, you get God, Christ, human dignity, flourishing, immortality, goodness, here, secure hope for eternity into the future. I urge secular humanists to repent of their desire to be good without God. I urge them to confess their sin to God and to receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Christians are not better than you. We're not better than you. We're only forgiven. If you repent and trust in Jesus Christ, if you believe that he died on the cross for your unethical behavior, moreover, for your sinful heart, if you believe that God raised him from the dead, that he conquered death, to put you into a right relationship with the God of life. He will receive you and give you a new heart, a new life, one that will last forever, as well as a redeemed perspective on the world and consistency in your thinking and moral reasoning. This is what God promises us in Scripture. It can be yours. It will be yours when you repent and trust in Jesus Christ. There is true life and true ethics and true morality in the name of Jesus Christ. Well, that's all I have for you today. I hope that this was helpful. Just a a reminder, I am giving away a free book and that's going to be at the end of the month. I'm going to give it away to one lucky listener who leaves a five-star and honest five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Simply look us up at, if if you're watching on Facebook or YouTube, simply look us up at The Think Podcast with Joel Sedicase on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or your favorite um, podcast catcher app, but uh, the giveaway is only for Apple Podcasts. So um, look us up on there. If you want to get in touch, email me at thethink.institute at gmail.com. Drop me a line on there. I get uh, messages from time to time on there as well as on Facebook. And uh, I love answering Bible questions, theology questions, apologetics questions. It's a lot of fun. This is not goodbye. This has just been a little pit stop on the road of your spiritual journey. I hope it's been helpful. 
And until next time, I hope it means you think. <laughs>